From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. Congress is split not just two, but three ways over the federal budget. Today we're joined by Democratic Representative Diana DeGette. Her own party is split as the government shutdown looms. And we'll talk about her effort to gauge the pandemic's impact on children. While children have been spared the same rates of severe symptoms or death as adults from the virus, we know that they are far from unscathed. Then, the Mesa County clerk who's facing election security questions fights to oversee voting this fall. And two centuries ago, it was a major trading route through the southeast part of Colorado. But the Santa Fe Trail's history goes back much further. A new exhibit tells the stories of indigenous people who shaped the route. You're used to monthly bills, monthly subscriptions, monthly fees, and you know paying for things over time makes the total cost more manageable. It's one reason most CPR donors give monthly, and it's also why many members are able to grow their support incrementally and make small adjustments that fit their budgets. If now is a good time to increase your monthly contribution by a few dollars, email membership at CPR.org. Thank you for your support. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Avery Lill. Congress has split not just two, but three ways over the federal budget and key elements of President Joe Biden's policy agenda. One of those fights could shut down the federal government by the end of next week. All of this while the COVID-19 pandemic continues. We're joined today by Democratic Congresswoman Diana DeGette of Denver. Congresswoman, welcome. Glad to be with you. You chaired a congressional hearing Wednesday on how the pandemic is affecting children. We'll get into that in a moment. But first, let's talk about some of these pressing financial issues. The House, including you, voted Tuesday to fund the government through December and to suspend the federal debt limit. Without those steps, there's a possibility government programs could shut down October 1st and the government could go into default sometime next month. That's when a government doesn't pay all of its debt obligations. No House Republicans voted for that measure. It's now headed to the Senate, where experts say it stands very little chance. Are we going to see a government shutdown and even a default? Well, I, I've got to say that that the number one responsibility of the government is to keep the trains running on time, keep the government open, and more urgently, If the debt ceiling needs to be raised, then we need to raise it. And we've done it a number of times since 2011, including with Republican support. The Republicans' failure to support this is just a bald exercise of power by Mitch McConnell. And what's really bad about it is it impacts the U.S. Uh, full faith and credit, it impacts our financial standing around the world. And so I, I think in the end, I hope in the end the Republicans will realize this is not the time to start playing politics with the debt ceiling. Democrats voted for raising the debt ceiling a number of times when Donald Trump was president and we voted for it uh, when the Republicans were in charge in Congress. We just we just think this is something that's sort of the basics of government. We can argue about the budget. We can argue about where we should be spending for next year, but we should not be playing politics with the full faith and credit of the United States. What do you think it will take for Democrats and Republicans to come to an agreement in the next week? 
Uh, well, again, I think that what needs to happen is that uh, I, I think what needs to happen is that Mitch McConnell needs to come to his senses and realize that he needs to do this. And I think he'll be under great pressure from Wall Street and others to do it, because, as I say, it affects the economy of the United States. I understand that there are ways with some maneuvering Democrats could do this on their own without Republicans. In the end, will the party do that to avoid a shutdown? Um, you know, I, 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 I'm not in the Senate, and so I can't tell you what they'll do, but I can assure you we will do everything we can to make sure that, that, this, that this happens, that, that the continuing resolution passes and that the debt ceiling is raised. But again, um, really, everybody should come together and at least do this. We can argue about the spending and all of the other pieces of legislation, the reconciliation bill, the Build Back Better bill, but we shouldn't be arguing about this. If the government does shut down on October 1st, you mentioned that there could be implications for the country's financial standing around the world. What are some examples of what might happen in Colorado? You know, I'm just not going to speculate about that. I'm going to do everything to make sure that that, uh, th- that we pass this. That's why I voted for it the other day. And that's why I'm going to keep pressing ahead for it. And are th- is there an increased need, an increased impetus during a pandemic for the government to not shut down? I know there have been shutdowns before, but not during a pandemic like this. Well, I mean, we should never the, the government should never be shut down. And uh, as you as you know, we had several shutdowns, again, caused by the Republicans over the last few years. And and a pandemic is a particularly bad time to do it, especially when we have the increase in the Delta variant. We have the need now to um, continue to vaccinate Americans. We're still not where we need to go with vaccination. Only 42% of kids between 12 and 18 are vaccinated. So we need to push that. And then of course, once the authorization comes from the FDA for the um, vaccine for kids between five and 12, we expect that in October, then we need to work on that. So you're right. It's a really bad time for the Republicans to decide to shut down the government um, if they do it, which I which I hope they won't. And in the end, I think they'll come together. I don't want people to get unduly alarmed. And part of what's at issue here are two proposals from the Biden administration. The first is a trillion dollar infrastructure package that's already passed the Senate. The second is President Biden's Build Back Better plan. That's three point five trillion. First, where are you on each of those bills as they stand now? Well, I support both of the bills. And in fact, I uh, I have voted for the infrastructure bill. It's it's got critical it's got critical improvements for roads and highways, but also public transportation for building the grid out so that we can move towards renewable energy and many, many other priorities. But that bill really goes hand in hand with the Build Back Better bill. That's the $3.5 trillion budget reconciliation bill that you were talking about. And we expect to see both of those bills on the floor next week. And I will definitely support both of them. And those bills have actually divided House Democrats. A so-called moderate group is arguing for the trillion-dollar infrastructure bill, but some of them are more hesitant about the spending in the Build Back Better plan. Then there are liberals who say they won't vote for one of those bills without the other. Um, In that dispute, tell me about how you're thinking about that. Well, 
so first of all, everybody, all of the Democrats in the House and in the Senate support the Build Back Better bill. They support the goals of moving towards clean energy, of expanding health care for Americans, of expanding um, Medicare so that it covers vision and dental and 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 um, a lot of the provisions for kids and education, people support all of that. The disagreement between um, different folks is how is either the the length of time these programs will be in effect or the breadth of them. And and you know this is this is just part to me. I've been in Congress a long time. This is just part of the way the sausage is made. This negotiation. I think all of the Democrats will ultimately come together on an infrastructure bill and on a budget reconciliation bill. What you're seeing right now is just the end of the negotiations. Um, Yesterday, I spent some time talking to some leadership aides and also even some members of Congress in leadership, and they feel like even though it's a painful negotiation, that it is uh, going on and that we will come to a resolution. Is there some middle ground that could be reached on the size of the package that could get all Democrats on board? Absolutely. There's always, you know, that that's it's always negotiation. That's what... Uh, government is about. It's, it's, and, and unfortunately, some people don't realize that is it's all about weighing the equities and, and negotiating something that, that is acceptable to everybody. So I, I think that that's what we will be able to do in the end, but it's, it's not pretty once it's going on. I'm speaking with Democratic Representative Diana DeGette of Denver. The dispute is right now it's so bad that the President Biden had a bunch of Democratic colleagues at the White House Wednesday to try to sort it out. Does that kind of dissent within your own party tell you that maybe the president is overreaching here, trying to do too much too quickly and risking not getting anything done at all? No, I don't think so at all. I think it's just, again, part of the part of the operation of government. And remember, the Democrats have just a three vote majority in the House and, and the Senate is 50-50. And so it's, um, it, it is a challenge to negotiate a bill that is acceptable to everybody. And the challenge is made even greater by the fact that the Republicans refused to negotiate with us. We're having to do this all just within the Democratic Party. I, I think your listeners should, should remember that in the past, uh, uh, the parties tried to work together on important issues facing our nation. The infrastructure bill is a good example. There are many, many infrastructure projects that impact, for example, all of Colorado, Western Colorado, Northern Colorado, roads and highways and bridges and water projects. But yet my Republican colleagues have all been instructed to vote against the bill. One of my, um, I have a, I work a lot with Republicans on different legislation, and one of my friends yesterday showed me the whip notice that the Republicans sent out, and they basically demanded that no Republicans vote for this infrastructure package. Why? Because they want to make it difficult for Democrats. And I don't think that's really serving their constituents very well. They might disagree with us on some of the issues in Build Back Better. So, you know, some of the benefits in health care or some of the 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 um, uh, renewable energy provisions. I get that. 
but not infrastructure, but yet they just won't even talk to us. And so we're having to work this out just with Democrats. And I believe we will, because we have that commitment to serving the Democratic people, or I mean, all, all not just Democrats, but all Americans. Let's talk now about the pandemic and that hearing that you chaired Wednesday that focused on the impact it's having on kids. So many issues with the virus. Why the need to hone in on that particular part of the population? So I'm I'm the um, chair of the Oversight Subcommittee of Energy and Commerce, and we have jurisdiction over all of healthcare policy. I think I've had eight hearings on issues relating to the pandemic this year. And the reason we did this most recent one focusing on kids is because kids are going back to school and yet the Delta variant is, is raging. As I mentioned, just 42% of kids between 12 and 18 have been vaccinated. And we're hoping that the FDA will approve the vaccine for kids five to 12. So we wanted to explore number one, what has happened to kids during the pandemic with, with the virtual schooling last year. And number two, what parents can do to be assured that their kids will be safe going back to school this fall. Some of your Republican colleagues argued that the focus on keeping kids safe from the virus has been too strict. Things like remote learning last year, masking requirements and quarantine in a lot of schools this year. They say steps like those are contributing to children's mental health issues and affecting their education. Where is the balance to you? Well, I I agree. You know, mental health among adolescents and younger kids was at a crisis point before the pandemic, and the pandemic only exacerbated that. That's why we need, in in the Build Back Better bill, we have uh, a, a, a large chunk of money to go for mental health training for professionals and also establishment of programs. What what I'm looking at now, and I think I believe that schools should be open, but the parents I'm hearing from want to make sure their kids will be safe in school. So what we wanted to hear was what is safe for kids going back to school. And we heard a couple of things. Number one, the kids need to get vaccinated. The vaccine is safe. It's been approved. And that'll be our best, best bet. Secondly, one of the um, the person from the Academy of Pediatrics told us there's some new studies out that show that masking, in fact, does work. And then, and then the other thing we talked about is, let's say you have a kid in class that's been diagnosed or that positive for COVID. What do you do? You can't send the whole school back for quarantine for two weeks. And so there's some innovative new approaches for testing, um, for for um, isolating just certain kids, and then and then being able to ha- keep most kids in school. But pa- what parents want, they want their kids to be back in school, and they want them to be safe. And that's what I want too. And regular testing, it's an aspect of this. If you can identify who's got the virus quickly, you can keep them from spreading it. Hopeful is the hope. Well, that's that's right. And you can you can keep them from spreading it, and then you can also make sure all the people who were around them don't test positive and spread it even more. Colorado has a new statewide program for testing in schools, but only about 20% of schools are participating. What can be done to improve testing? Well, um, you know, the, the congressional delegation and Governor Polis talk on a regular basis, and we'll be talking later this week. And I think that's an excellent question to ask the governor. What can Colorado do and what can the federal government help 
uh, do to help Colorado get those tests uh, out to the schools and encourage them to participate? Because I think that really will give people a much bigger peace of mind. Let's talk briefly about the situation in Afghanistan, particularly the refugees who are entering the country. Has your office dealt with a lot of people seeking to leave Afghanistan or needing help now that they're here? So we, yes, over over uh, August and first part of September, we've had a number of calls from people who knew folks who were trying to get out of Afghanistan. And we worked very closely with the State Department to get that information, to get it to them and to try to get them help. Um, I just asked my staff the other day what was going on with those cases. And we haven't heard specifically about any of those cases, but we're hoping to continue to pressure to get them out. Um, and in just the 45 seconds that we have left, do you think that the Biden administration handled the departure from Afghanistan and the evacuation correctly? It was a chaotic situation, no doubt. And I um, I just, right now, I'm not focused on recrimination. What I'm focused on is trying to get any remaining American citizens out of there and also the Afghanis who, who co- co- corroborated with us. And finally, I think what the United States and our allies around the world need to do is look at either carrots or sticks, sanctions or incentives to make sure that Afghan women and children are treated with the respect and with the um, and 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 allowed to go to school, allowed to work. I was in Afghanistan some years ago, meeting with some of those women, and and we need to try to make sure that they are that they are taken care of. But on the other hand, we couldn't stay there indefinitely. I I think we did need to leave, and so we we now we need to figure out what we can do to help protect those women and children. Representative DeGette, thank you for joining us. Great being with you. Democrat Diana DeGette has represented Denver in the U.S. House since 1997. An update now on the ongoing saga of the Mesa County Election Office. You may have heard the county clerk is being investigated for allegedly allowing someone to make copies of sensitive election equipment software. The state is trying to remove her from overseeing the fall election, and the whole thing is now in court. CPR's Benta Berkland has been following the story and is here with the latest developments. Hi, Benta. Hi. Before we get into what's new, we should probably catch up on what this clerk, Tina Peters, is accused of doing. Right. This all started because secure passwords and data from the voting machines in Mesa County that the county uses were leaked online this summer. And the machines are made by Dominion. This is a Colorado-based company that a lot of election conspiracy theorists have focused on. QAnon supporters have publicized the leak from Mesa County, and then people eager to cast doubt on the results of the 2020 presidential election shared the images. One element of the story is that though much of this investigation into the leak, uh, Peters hasn't been in the state, right? Yes. For weeks, her whereabouts were actually unknown. But she returned to Colorado last week and appeared at a rally with supporters at a church in Grand Junction. Peters told the crowd, quote, some powerful people don't want us to look at the facts. And then she said, 
In fact, they're trying to remove me as the Mesa County recorder just for doing my job. Peters has said that she had concerns about the 2020 election and was actually, she was a featured speaker about this at a conference hosted by the CEO of MyPillow, Mike Lindell. And Lindell has been at the center of false claims that the election was rigged against Donald Trump. It sounds like she isn't denying that she allowed someone to access this confidential election software. That's right. A lot of her side of the story is laid out in a new court filing in response to the state's efforts to strip her of her election oversight role. And in these filings, her attorney says, yes, Peters did allow a person who was not her employee to capture images of the Dominion machines. But he said Peters did this because she was trying to preserve records and to better analyze how the state conducted election equipment updates. Peters says she didn't trust how the state would conduct the update. She worried records and she believes evidence of fraud could be lost. As for this information leaking out to the public, the court filing says Peters didn't authorize that, even though that's what ultimately happened. So she admitted to letting someone copy the hard drives. Is that allowed? That's a point of dispute. The state argues Peters did not have the authority to allow a non-employee to have any access to this information. And Peters says she did. Does the state have a response to Peters saying that she should remain in charge of Mesa County's elections? I reached out to the Secretary of State's office and Secretary Jenna Griswold called the security breach in Mesa County serious because it compromised election equipment and spread election misinformation. Griswold responded to the notion that Peters needed to bring in a consultant to take pictures of the equipment. Griswold said counties have other ways to preserve information. And Griswold said clerks are told to save any data prior to an upgrade and then they can restore it afterwards. What should we expect to happen next with all of this? Pretty soon, we should be getting a ruling from a judge in Mesa County about whether Peters can continue to oversee this upcoming election. Um, As for the investigation, the FBI and Mesa County's district attorney, they are still looking into this security breach. So far, no charges have been filed. And of course, you know, yes, we have a fall election coming up. There are school board racers and city and council Uh, raises ballot measures in Mesa County. No one knows exactly whether or how all of this may affect the degree to which people return their ballots and whether people ultimately believe the election results. Benta, for people who might be listening and wondering what assurances the state gives that its election results are accurate, what should they know? Well, I would note that Colorado's audits show that there were no problems with the state's election in 2020. Colorado has paper ballots. Those are preserved. And in every county, a random sample of these ballots are checked against the machine count after the election. So this is to make sure the machines tallied people's choices correctly. Those audits happen in every county, including in Mesa County. Also, bigger picture, there weren't meaningful discrepancies found anywhere in the country related to the presidential election. And it is worth mentioning that while Donald Trump lost Colorado, he did easily win in Mesa County. Thank you, Benta. Thanks. CPR Public Affairs reporter Benta Berkland. When we come back, exploring the untold stories of the Santa Fe Trail. I'm Avery Lill. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC.
The Pueblo chili may not be as well known as its cousin from New Mexico, the Hatch chili, but fans of fiery flavor know which one tastes better. The pepper from Pueblo is also known as the Mirasol, which translates looking at the sun. And indeed, it does point upwards as it grows under bright southern Colorado skies. Latino and Italian farmers have grown it for more than a century, but in 2005, Colorado State University released an improved variety, thicker and meatier, better for roasting and dicing into green chili, spooned over burritos, enchiladas, and just about everything. The pepper has its own day at the Colorado State Fair, as well as a chili and frijole festival and a specialty license plate. And when the Denver Broncos offered Hatch Chili products at concession stands, local chili fans pushed back. The rivalry was hot, more than a little spicy, and in the end, confirmed Colorado's love for the Pueblo Chili. A Colorado postcard from CPR. This year marks the 200th anniversary of the Santa Fe Trail as a major commercial route across the Great Plains. It stretched more than 800 miles between the Missouri River and Santa Fe, New Mexico. Bent's Fort near La Junta in southeastern Colorado was an important stop along the trail. It's now a National Historic Site. Park Ranger Jake Cook tells KRCC's Shauna Lewis about the trail's history. When William Becknell first comes over the trail in 1821, he brought about $300 worth of trade goods, and he makes a profit of nearly $6,000. The next year, he comes back with an investment of three dollars to $5,000 and returns with a profit of $91,000. That's over $2 million in the day's money. So business was booming. This is all about making money, trading with the Mexican settlements. They'd go to Santa Fe and Taos and even all the way down into Chihuahua. And it was a two-way street, too. There, there were almost as many, if not more, according to some accounts, Mexican traders going east as there were American traders coming west. For southeast Colorado, it's the first path for people coming into Colorado with all the freight coming over. Later on, once you have, say, the Pikes Peak Gold Rush coming through, the Santa Fe Trail is one of the major thoroughfares that brings that 100,000 people that come out to Colorado in 1859. Talk about the mountain branch portion of the trail that passes through Colorado. Why are there two branches? So the trail split in western Kansas, and actually the most often used route was not the mountain branch route. It was the other route called the dry route or the Cimarron Cutoff. It goes for a huge stretch without water. You're also going right through the heart of Comanche and Apache territory who weren't, for obvious reasons, happy with people coming through their land. That was the most direct route, though. This route, the mountain route that Vence Ford is on, it had water most of the way. It followed the Arkansas River and Tempest Creek. You did have Vence Ford to stop on, which was a big plus because this is the only spot all the way out from Missouri where, you know, there's a blacksmith shop, a carpenter shop, a place where you can get wagon wheels fixed, get supplies. The issue, though, is you have to go over Raton Pass if you come this way. It's not fun nowadays in the winter on I-25. Imagine doing it with a wagon pulled by mules or oxen. This is actually roughly the route that Becknell does take on his way south the first time 200 years ago in 1821. Was there really no route there before, and Becknell actually blazed this trail? You know, I, I think it's just like every trail system that you get from the East Coast all the way to the Pacific is the first trails are game trails that Native Americans start to use frequently. And then when the Europeans arrive, we say that we discover all these trails, but really we're piecing together Native American trails. We know there was a large trade work among the different Native American groups pre-contact. So certainly those are pieced together. We know the Spanish under Coronado came all the way up into Kansas, and the Spanish were very active 
in what's now Oklahoma and Texas and even have expeditions in this part of the world. Zebulon Pike had already come out here in the early 1800s as well and used a portion of what becomes that trail too. So really he's piecing together routes and using common sense and following game trails, I think. Describe what you might have seen along the Santa Fe Trail in Colorado back in the 1800s. Colorado, uh, on the, the mountain branch coming in, you've got the most diverse topography of the whole trail. Going through Kansas, not picking on Kansas, but it, it kind of looks the same for most of the stretch. Just that open prairie and that river bottom of the Arkansas you're keeping in sight for the most part. Here, you, you've got that in the eastern part of the state and certainly where we're at. But then you start to pick up hills and soon enough, the mountains come into sight. Just east of us is where Zebulon Pike first sees Pike's Peak from. So it's clear enough to see the whole range of mountains on clear days here from the Spanish Peaks all the way up to Pike's Peak. So talk a little bit more about who was using the trail back then and what they were carrying and how they were transporting it. You've got big operators like Bent St. Vrain and Company. You've got smaller traders that might own a wagon or two. They'd all combine together for the big caravans just for mutual protection and safety and to help each other out. And they're bringing out really just any manufactured goods that they could get their hands on. So ironwares, textiles, things like that were really common to be brought from the east. And then the big things going from west to east are going to be silver and then livestock as well. What was life really like on the Santa Fe Trail? You know, there were definitely a lot of difficulties. It was dangerous if you didn't know what you were doing, especially. But, you know, even experienced people can have a bad day, so to speak. It was certainly tough going. I've read accounts where it takes them 30 days to go less than 30 miles in eastern Kansas on a really wet year because every creek, stream, and river is flooded and they're up to their axles in mud. That's Jake Cook, a park ranger with Bent's Fort National Historic Site, speaking with KRCC's Shauna Lewis. Traders avoided those hard travel conditions after the railroad came through in the 1870s. That's when use of the Santa Fe Trail declined. The fort is hosting Santa Fe Trail's 200th anniversary events starting today. As the ranger noted, people traveled this route long before 1821. A New History Colorado exhibit in the Trinidad History Museum shares stories of indigenous people and some of the lesser-known women who influenced the trade routes and the communities along the trail. Julie Peterson is the lead curator for that exhibit. She's a public historian and has spent a lot of time thinking about how the stories and significance of the Santa Fe Trail in southern Colorado are told. Welcome, Julie. Thanks for having me, Avery. Why do a lot of people think of 1821, 200 years ago, as essentially the start date of the Santa Fe Trail? Yeah, so 1821 was when Mexico became an independent country, and that allowed American traders to participate in the Santa Fe Trail. Before Spanish colonial rules excluded American traders from um, participating in the trade, And so 1821, when Mexico became an independent country, really allowed uh, American traders to participate for the first time and really opened up those trade routes. So that geopolitical shift, Mexico's independence from Spain, it significantly changed who was using the Santa Fe Trail and how. But the trail itself has a much longer history. Tell us briefly about the route's origins. Of course. So the what we now know as the Santa Fe Trail was had its origins really as the North America's kind of first super highways of the indigenous peoples, native peoples uh, living in the what we now call the borderlands of southern Colorado, the northern New Mexico, southern Colorado region. 
uh, really used the created the trade the trail systems that became the Santa Fe Trail uh, hundreds even thousands of years ago, trading hunted foods uh, for um, foods and agriculture grown further east, um, really adapting to our arid climate um, and using trade to do so. We know many, many tribal nations were using these routes, just to name a few, the Cheyenne, Arapaho, and Ute tribes. We heard from the park ranger in La Junta, there was more than one route that you could take on the Santa Fe Trail around southwestern Kansas. It splits and one branch goes up through Colorado and another bends down across the tip of Oklahoma and into New Mexico. That path through Colorado, it's not the most direct shot. Why would people go that way? You know, I think people, as I said before, the trails were, you know, ancient routes um, that people would have been using for generations. And so I think they were um, traveling along routes that uh, the people living in the region knew very well. Um, and then the the mountain route um, really, you know, people could adapt to it um, during different weather conditions um, and 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 really adapt to to both different routes. How did the Santa Fe Trail influence the evolution of Trinidad as a town in particular? Yeah, so Trinidad really is located right on that mountain trail, the mountain route of the Santa Fe Trail. And the people who uh, founded the town of Trinidad in 1862 uh, really took advantage of the wealth that came with um, tapping into the Santa Fe trade and um, used that to establish Trinidad um, when it became really one of the largest cities in Colorado. We heard William Becknell's name a few times. He's the man who's credited with pioneering the trail in 1821. But can you tell me a little bit more about some of the lesser known people, women specifically, who played large roles in Southern Colorado during the era of the Santa Fe Trail? Yeah, of course. So there was tons of cultural exchange in addition to commercial exchange happening along the Santa Fe Trail. And we really wanted to highlight stories of particularly women um, who don't get, uh, um, you know, talked about as much in history, who were really um, the lifeblood of the Santa Fe Trail region. Um, We share some stories of um, um, Native women, Hispano women, and even uh, Kathy Williams, who is the only known female Black Buffalo soldier. Um, She was born in Missouri to... um, an enslaved woman and a free man. And she joined the Union Army uh, under the name William Cathy. Um, So she was disguised uh, during the Civil War. Um, And then she made her way to Trinidad, where she ended up dying um, without any sort of recognition for her military service. Um, So it was women like Cathy Williams, women like Amachi Ochini Prowers, um, and Romalda Luna Boggs, who really Um, utilize their different cultural um, and political backgrounds to make a life for themselves along the trail. And as we've said, many tribal nations used this land, lived in this land, and traveled on these trails well before William Becknell. How did U.S. traders in the U.S. Army developing the trail affect Native communities in those regions? Yeah, so of course, um, the opening of the trade to Americans um, really created an influx of both uh, military and civilian presence, um, which created resource competition along the trail. Um, So well-established Native um, empires um, were already um, sort of competing for those resources. And when you get the American arrivals, um, that only increases. 
Um, it also opening the trade to Americans allowed for the military um, move of uh, the U.S.-Mexican War in 1846, which was ended in 1848 with the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo, which ceded a lot of the land that had become Mexico to the United States. So it completely shifted the dynamics um, politically there. And of course, that impacted people who had been living in what was Mexico, so Hispano peoples, um, as well as the many Native peoples who were living there as well. Um, and so that kind of shift in power uh, precipitated what would later become um, the move of um, Native peoples to different distant reservations throughout the country. This trail, it had a lot to do with money and trade, but your exhibit also looks at how it impacted the exchange of cultural traditions and religious practices. Can you say more about that? Of course. So a lot of the materials that were moving back and forth along the trade um, really represent different cultural traditions. So you have things like native beadwork, um, you have different religious items, particularly from uh, the Spanish Empire, um, you know, the Christian practices that were coming through, um, really hybridizing with many of the people's um, native spiritual practices. Um, so a lot of the materials you'll see uh, will have, um, you know, Spanish um, religious tradition. We have a retablo, um, which is a, a religious painting um, on display in the exhibit. Um, and then we also, of course, have uh, a few items of native beadwork. Um, and you see those different cultural um, traditions and religious practices blending along the way. And what do we know about how that increased use of the trail affected the environment? So as I mentioned before, um, it caused a lot of resource competition, right? So Colorado is a very dry state, so there already wasn't very much um, water to begin with. Um, so you see a lot of practices in the region um, that, that deal with um, drought, and um, it really shifted um, you know, the, the populations of game that were available. Um, so you're seeing environmental shifts as well as those political and cultural changes. Thank you so much for joining us, Julie. Of course, my pleasure. Julie Peterson is a public historian and lead curator for History Colorado's Santa Fe Trail exhibit at the Trinidad History Museum. The exhibit opens tomorrow. <laughs> The demand for in-person entertainment is back, and that means big crowds gathering, both indoors and out. CPR health reporter John Daly asks, what's the risk? Fall 2021 is looking nothing like 2020. In-person concerts like Denver's Underground Music Showcase are back with big crowds. So is college football. For the Buffs and Rams and Air Force Falcons with even bigger crowds. I've been thinking a lot about this. Rick Kornfeld has had Bronco season tickets for decades. He's rarely missed an opening game like this Sunday's against the New York Jets. Often he goes with his 82-year-old mom. They're both fully vaccinated, but there is no vaccination or mask requirement at Empower Field. Not only will a lot of people not be wearing masks, but there will be a number of people 
in a stadium of almost 80,000 people that are not vaccinated. What is the risk to me? What's the risk to my husband? What's the risk to my child? That's Greer Hancock. She and her husband bought tickets for Dave Matthews at Fiddler's Green Amphitheater next month. They're fully vaccinated and have a toddler at home. The venue will require vaccination and strongly encourages masks. What if we contracted it, didn't know it, and then unknowingly passed it along somewhere else because we were at this live outdoor event with so many people? There are so many questions. Dr. Michelle Barron from UC Health has some answers. For starters, she says being vaccinated and masked is much better than not, and outdoors is much better than indoors. You have to sit down and sort of do the math in your head as to what the implications, A, if you got COVID, or B, what's the real risk? Hotchkiss resident Greg Crush isn't vaccinated, but also isn't hesitating to attend in-person events. I mean, you're taking a risk no matter what you do, unless you want to live in a bubble. There are a lot of people like him in Colorado. As many as 2 million aren't vaccinated, and some of them will be at the Bronco game, maybe sitting next to you. Mom Carrie Wittesley from Evergreen has two elementary school kids, so they're not vaccinated. She and her husband are and plan to take them to a buff game soon. If we are, let's say, outside at this football game, should we be wearing masks? Yes, Barron says a mask will improve your odds of staying COVID-free. If you're fully vaccinated, you wear a mask, you bring your hand sanitizer, your risk is still going to be incredibly low. UC Health has a sponsorship relationship with the Broncos. Barron helped guide the vaccination effort for the team, which reportedly has a better-than-average 95% vaccination rate. They also mostly practice and play outdoors, and that's a big bonus, she says. That's an advantage fans of the Avs and Nuggets won't have this winter. Indoors, when you start getting into big groups, I really start worrying about like the airflow. How close are you to people and how well are people wearing masks? Infectious disease doctor Sean O'Leary with Children's Hospital Colorado agrees your level of risk depends on what events you're looking to attend and your personal circumstances. When it comes to children under 12 who can't yet get vaccinated, the risk to them of severe disease, hospitalization, or death is lower than older adults. But it's not zero. You know, it's something that I think is a very personal decision in terms of are you willing to accept that risk? DU aerosol expert Alex Huffman says it's good to think about how viruses like COVID-19 spread. You can be infected if you breathe air that's directly breathed out by someone else. He says that's why outdoors is considerably safer, though not risk-free, than indoors, where like, say, cigarette smoke... The aerosol still builds up if the room is not ventilated properly. Indeed, a study from England of this summer's European Cup soccer tournament, televised by ESPN, found risk for fans wasn't just at full stadiums... but when traveling or carousing in poorly ventilated bars and pubs. In those cases, masks, which contain aerosol spread of the virus, helped. Most of all, the scientific consensus is the best protection is vaccination. Former Bronco and radio host Ryan Harris has been promoting it and hopes the message sinks in. I'm just trying to give the reasons why I got the vaccine and why I'm totally safe and healthy. Public health officials and doctors hope more fans heed that advice. That alone will help keep in power field and other packed venues safe for everyone. I'm John Daly, CPR News.
Like so many of us in the last year, Jody Hollander found herself turning to nature for inspiration and escape from the pandemic. The Fort Collins poet immersed herself in the outdoors, including on the screen. Here is an interesting thing she learned about Anastatica, a type of mustard plant, from watching nature documentaries. There's this dried up ball of twigs that can sit out on the Sahara for like 100 years or more and just be in this state of total desiccation for a century. And then when the rain comes, it can instantly find health and happiness and blossom again. And I just thought that was the most incredible metaphor for what we're capable of as human beings, particularly after having endured such a difficult pandemic year. I think maybe a lot of people feel like maybe they feel like a dried up ball of twigs. But this idea of resilience and coming back was really powerful to me. Hollander was moved to write something about that. Here she is with her poem, A Dried Up Ball of Twigs. Certainly it's not easy out on the Sahara when nothing seems to change. But one day the winds pick up, the sky splits open, and suddenly there's rain. Then, in only moments, the skeleton-like thing can drink its way entirely back to being green and bold and flourishing. It may be hard to believe, but we too can fold inwards, nearly die for a while. But listen, we come back. This is not religion, but the hardiness of nature designed to endure the very worst conditions. Even when hope is scant, consider we are built for moments just like this, like this resurrection plant. Jody Hollander wants poetry to be more accessible to readers, so she spends a lot of her time teaching workshops. That, of course, had to be adapted in the past year. You know, before the pandemic hit, I had a really busy schedule lined up of workshops in person, including a whole tour around the state of Arizona in all of the national parks and national monuments and those types of things you can't really replicate over, you know, with a virtual workshop. But just sort of basic uh, learning techniques, learning about musicality, learning, you know, the basics of, of rhythm and meter and sound, that kind of stuff you can do pretty well in a virtual workshop. One of her highlights from the last year was seeing the warm reception for Amanda Gorman's appearance at the inauguration for Joe Biden. The 23-year-old former National Poet Laureate gave Hollander a somewhat renewed sense of pride in her profession. As a poet, I've always felt like we sort of get ignored. And, you know, I've reached the point where if I'm at a cocktail party or something like that, I don't even say I'm a poet because sometimes I think people are going to I don't know. I don't know what they're going to think. I think it's just easier to say, oh, I'm a teacher because I'm also a teacher. So the fact that this young poet was able to come forward and just be received by our country so warmly was was really incredible. Um, I think poets were delighted to see this. And I think this is going to be a really powerful uh, bump for poetry in this country. We'll leave you with one more poem from Jody Hollander. This one was pulled from an experience she had during a teaching residency in St. Croix. On the island, there's actually a horse rescue organization that takes people out horseback riding through the rainforest and then takes you into the Caribbean 
on the backs of the horses. And these are all horses that have either been abused or abandoned, and then they've been rehabilitated through this organization. And then tourists can be part of this and can experience going through the rainforest and then going into the ocean. So I thought, oh, God, this this kind of looks like a once in a lifetime experience I'd like to try. And from that, she wrote Horse Swimming. When at last their big bodies, hot and caked with mud, dip into the Caribbean, all the horses groan and grunt noisily. Perhaps it's something primal, a kind of old contentment we humans have forgotten. The trail ride is over, and out of the familiar line, the horses swim together, bumping into each other and snorting with excitement. Some of them start to charge deeper into the ocean, kicking underwater and racing one another. Others simply float there, comfortably with the current, as if in another life they were creatures of the sea. Still others get so happy they defecate into the water. We don't quite understand. And yet, in this moment, it somehow all makes sense. Knowing the reins are useless, I'm holding the bare neck of this strong, joyful creature plunging through the water and laughing in the waves when suddenly it hits me. This business of being human is utterly absurd. Jody Hollander with Horse Swimming. We spoke in April. The Fort Collins-based poet has a full slate of workshops through next month. She's also working on a second book, a follow-up to her 2017 collection, My Dark Horses. Thank you for joining us and to the Colorado Matters team. Carl Bielek. Ali Butner. Anthony Cotton. Andrea Dukakis. Michelle Fulcher. Matt Hers. Michael Hughes. Carla Jimenez. Pedro Lumbrano. Patrice Mondragon. Shane Rumsey. Ryan Warner. And I'm Avery Lill with special thanks to Megan Verlee. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. KRCC.